This episode of Speech Bubble is dedicated to the memory of Lamin Martin. Fly on leather wings, my friend. You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula, where not only can you get your comics, your magic cards, and all the stuff that geeks like you will love, but now that accessible washroom is finally complete. This hits home for me, you guys. I'm a guy who uses a mobility scooter. I know how hard it is sometimes to have washrooms accessible in Toronto. So I'm really proud of Leon for putting his money where his mouth is, completing that accessible washroom, and making equal access for everyone. So go on down to 3456 Young Street, Harry Tarantula, and tell them Aaron sent you. Hey, fan people. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I'm always talking about the connection between comics and coffee. It's because I love coffee. I do my French press every morning. I do the pour over. That's why we've teamed with the superheroes at BAM Coffee, bamcoffee.ca. Their roaster, Aaron, is Canadian. He's from Saskatchewan, and he's a geek like us. That's why he's putting his clean, ethically sourced coffee in something called a BAM box. He's combining coffee with the geek swag that I know our listeners are going to love. That's 700 grams or 350 grams of coffee with art prints by local Canadian comic artists, a limited edition mug. I mean, what more could you ask for? If you want to try it, he's giving a special promo code to Speech Bubble listeners, SB15. So go to bamcoffee.ca, type in SB15 at checkout, and get 15% off your first BAM box. Hey, maybe you want to just try the coffee. That's okay too. He'll send you 150 grams of coffee, and all you gotta pay for is the shipping. I mean, that's a pretty amazing deal. So go to bamcoffee.ca and tell Aaron that Aaron sent you. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. Don't forget to follow us on all social media at SpeechBubblePod. Don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast needs met, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, and Google Play. Uh, don't forget to rate and review our show on Apple Podcast. It helps other people know that we exist. And if you rate our show, I will give you a comic from my personal collection. With me today, we have Tishon Dwyer. Tishon is one of the original founding members of From a Hat. Uh, if you're a OG listener of Speech Bubble, you may have heard our episodes with Jamal Campbell, Paris Aline, Janoy Lindsay. All of these guys are members of the From a Hat Collective, so uh, we're happy to have Tishon in. He is here promoting his self-published comic, Desert Messiah. It's sort of like Lone Wolf and Cub. It's sort of like The Mandalorian in a way. It's got the sort of spiritual sci-fi element to it. He's also appeared in The Black Hole Hunters Club Presents, the biggest thing ever. The Black Hole Hunters Club was a indie comic by our friends Ricky Lima and Shane Heron. And uh, uh, Tishon did uh, pencil and did all the art for this little one shot where um, the basically assassin bounty hunter aliens would talk about their biggest kills ever. So look for that. Also, he was on in the Black Comics Returns Anthology from Lion Forge, basically a bunch of uh, black artists got together 
and uh, did a bunch of stories in an anthology collection. So welcome, Tishon. How are you? I'm good. How are you? It's great. Yeah, I know. It's great to have you because we've been basically trying to get together. We've had a bunch of like almost bookings. That didn't end up working out, it's or like you're the making. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's so it's it's been a long uh, a long year and trying to get you in. So I'm really happy that we can finally uh, do this for you. I'm a fan of Desert Messiah. I read the first issue. Um, now it's on to its second issue. So I'm a I'm a bit behind, but uh, I'm uh, looking forward to reading it. And everybody should totally check it out. But before we get into that, as your latest work, I wanted to get into sort of uh, where you grew up. What was your early life like? So I grew up in the the northwest side of uh, Toronto. Um, I don't know like if a lot of people know about that kind of area, but it, it's bordered by the Jane Strip and like um, Etobicoke and Rexdale. So it's not the best area for a, you know a kid to grow up but it's all right is there like a lot of crime there more than there is in other places okay um a lot of carjackings uh muggings that kind of thing so but how did how did you stay safe um so originally like i was a kid that liked to play okay um but my dad was just like no 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 i don't want you to be one of those kids outside doing that kind of stuff right so um from the age of like 10 to maybe 19 i'd work in his uh, shop um he had like a photo store so after school on weekends that's basically how i stayed out of trouble and uh, that's also how i like started drawing because there's nothing really to do in a store by yourself so i would just draw to pastime nice so it was it was sort of like a like a blacks photography like you saw like frames and photos yeah frames like back in the day you would do the um uh the 135 mm film oh yeah you have to go into a black room all that kind of stuff yeah yeah did people have their portraits taken there? Yeah, people had their portraits, weddings, funerals, if you can believe that. Wow. It's kind of creepy. Yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you, so when you say funerals, was it the family or did they bring in the body to have the body taken with the family? Well, like, so the, the funeral would happen. He would go there. Okay. Take pictures of the whole event and then take pictures of the body. Wow. Okay. Um, okay. So like chronicle the funeral, basically. Yeah. He was yeah. like photographer guy. Yeah. So y- were you like his assistant? Yeah, I was his assistant for uh, I guess maybe like five years after I started. Once I started getting the hang of the ropes. Nice. So what is it like being a photographer's assistant? Like, what what did you like about it? What did you dislike about it? I mean, I almost disliked everything because <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not what I wanted to do at all. So. I mean, I look back at it now and I'm like, okay, that wasn't so bad. But at the time, I was just like, I don't want anything to do with photography. You know what I think would be a pain in the ass and, and, and tell me if it was, but like working with like babies and kids and trying to get them to like smile uh, and not. It is painful. <laughs> so like we also did uh, like passport photos and that kind of stuff. So like you take one and then you would see them blink and you'd be like, okay, we have to take another one. They'd start crying. And you'd never be able to get it right for like 45 minutes and you just have to wait. There's nothing you can do. Oh, man. You try to give them candy and all this stuff and yeah. Oh, man. So when did you find time to draw while you were doing all this? Um, so like just basically the, the downtime in between nice. customers. Cool. Yeah. Uh, what kinds of stuff would you draw? Were you, were you just doodling? So or? back then I was big into like uh, Toonami and Saturday morning, morning cartoons. So I was just copying the characters line for line. Nice. A lot of anime and yeah, a lot of anime, Dragon Ball, um, Yu Yu Hakusho, that kind of stuff. Cool. Some Superman, Batman here and there. Nice, nice. So at the same time, were you into like comics as well? I would. Well, I I was always into comics, but I never saw them as a as a thing because they they would just be like in a dentist's office, and I'd pick it up. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And I'd read it, but like I wasn't really interested in it until years later. But I found like the sequential medium. I would say of comics through uh, manga first. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So it's a little bit different though because don't you have to read it like backwards to forwards? Yeah, yeah backwards to forwards. Yeah. And so, it, but I would say like most of the storytelling techniques are basically the same. It's just the tone and the reading style that's a little bit different. What did you like about anime and manga? For me, it was like the action because uh, I think that's just in my blood. <laughs> I just I just love energy and like kinetic stuff. So um, a lot of the stories they were telling that just gravitated, gravitated towards me. One of the first 
like anime series and i know this started out as a manga that i really liked was do you remember the afro samurai cartoon oh, yeah. yeah i do yeah 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 like that was one of the ones that i like actually liked for a while like i was i was into like sailor moon early like like you know when i was a kid but like when i got a little more mature like afro samurai was totally one of them and that's when i started to sort of realize that there was this connection between anime and manga and like black culture yeah right and you go into like the wu-tang and that sort of thing so being a black dude who was into anime and manga was it was it accepted in your social circle like is it like is is it was it common for you i would say yes more so than than comics like, okay basically everybody that like i grew up with they kind of either watch some anime they maybe read manga even if like they didn't stick with it throughout their life they kind of had like a little taste of it um like with sailor moon and dragon ball i think that's like during the explosion of the 90s i think that's where a lot of people uh latched onto it right and like pokemon was a thing yeah, pokemon yeah. digimon um cowboy bebop yeah akira yeah totally a lot of those things were huge yeah and and then there's the whole martial arts and hip-hop connection yeah. and that sort of stuff too so yeah, I mean, I guess anime and manga were like really, really cool. Um, yeah, that's 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 pretty awesome. So then, is that sort of like when you started to think like maybe I could do this as a career, or was it just sort of a hobby for for the longest time? Well, I, I never really thought of it as you know something I could do. Right. It was just kind of like okay, I draw and that's a thing. But it wasn't until like I think my last year in high school. And originally, I was going to go to school for graphic design and IT, I think. And right. then off the whim, I just took some art courses. I was like, oh, this is a thing. Cool. And then the next year, I think I signed up for for eight in a row. Because like that was a year you just had to pick your electives. Right, grade like 12 yeah. or 13 or whatever. And by the end of that year, I was just like, okay, this is something I want to pursue. Nice. So then I uh, applied to college like the next year and then got in what i always wonder like why it is that some people are attracted to like anime and manga and and some people are attracted to like superheroes like for you why do you think you went down like the the japanese comics instead of like the superhero comics i think no i mean now it's a little bit different but i think back then there was a lot of variation with the styles and, and stories so that there was essentially something for everybody Cause like they have like adult themed stuff and stuff for kids, and like they actually have like clear divides. Where as in mainstream comics or like superhero comics, you know you have your Batman, your Spider Man, but they're all kind of in one one group, right? Right, right. So whereas like there's different, I guess genre diversity. Yeah, there's all, yeah, there's genre diversity, um, yeah. and even in styles, like you have like a uh, Full Metal Alchemist, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's very like a, a rounded, you know, semi cartoonish style. Right. And you have something like Gantz where it's like mature and bloody and like almost like semi realistic, right? So Right. Or like a Jinji Ito t- sort of horror type exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, totally different. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's really cool. And and you're right, there is like more diversity. I mean, I think they're trying to get more diversity in superhero comics, but at the end of the day, they're just superhero There's, comics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. If I had to make a comparison, I would say that like the manga industry is almost as close to film where you have like so many different types of things. Right. And the superhero, it's more of like a TV show. Right. Right. It's like, it's like what Marvel is doing with the movies where it's still a superhero movie, but they're trying to do like a spy version of it. Exactly. So it'll be like a comedy superhero movie. Yeah. Or a romance superhero movie. Right. Yeah. It's still a superhero. Um, genre right whereas like manga is actually like a romance manga or a western manga or that sort of thing cool cool yeah and like also like because in japan like everybody reads manga i've always wanted to go there because it's like it's where comics are totally accepted in the mainstream you know so that's something i wish we had here where it was just like okay you see a guy that's like 70 on the bus reading a comic it's, it's fine right it just yeah totally accepted but here it's, it's so weird yeah yeah totally and and usually when you talk to like 
you know, an older person about comics, they think you're talking about like newspaper strips or something, or something <laughs> exactly. like that. You know, it's getting there though, because because of the awareness of the movies and stuff, everybody's coming out of the closet as like a superhero fan. And, yeah, you know, it's cool now. You won't get like beat up or whatever. Um, yeah, that's cool. So you took a bunch of art classes. What what did you what did you take in high school, like art class wise? Uh, I think I took animation um cover design uh i know i took photography even though i said just before i hated photography <laughs> right, right. but i just took it to fill it up yeah and you thought oh i'm gonna be great at this because yeah. i already was in the store yeah it's an easy I, I thought it was just an easy credit yeah it, totally it, it turned out to be actually <laughs> good uh, good i took um fine art which was kind of weird it's like a what system do they, they call it a baroque system i believe oh yeah it's where a, you kind of have the object in front of you and you measure it with a stick and then you copy it to your paper and you're doing like a one for one yeah of, uh, like copy. a still life sort of yeah, thing yeah cool cool so you, you excelled obviously at these are yeah, yeah I, I like passed all of them with uh going color so i was just like okay maybe i'm good at art yeah so i wasn't really a a plus student maybe like c or b right um so I found out that art was my calling. But then in art, you got like A's and stuff. Yeah, 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 totally. So then you're like, okay, like maybe this will be like the career. But it was like the last year of high school, right? Yeah. So it's like, oh, like I basically gotta... every decision at that point was like, you know, like it's time to go. What am I gonna do? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what did you end up doing for post secondary? So I went to this uh, private college called Max the Mutt. Oh, yeah. I know Maximum. They were on uh, Queen Street, but I think they're in Scarborough now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. They keep moving. Maximum has moved a bunch of times because yeah, I, I remember yeah. going to their place. I think it was like near Chinatown ish. Yeah, they used to be like near Chinatown. Yeah, and then they kind of moved down to Shaw and Queen. Yeah, and then they've moved to just outside of a uh, main station, I believe. Right, but a lot of people that we know have been there, like uh, Megan Carter teaches yep. there, and she was on our podcast. Oh, so stuff. does Paris now. Yeah. Oh, Paris, Paris teaches Aline. there now? Yeah. Cool, cool. Uh, that's where I met him. Oh, okay, yeah, because yeah. you guys were students there, right? Yeah. Nice. So, and that's kind of, I think he explained it, like that's kind of where From a Hat was formed. Can Basically, you, yeah. So can you tell me your perspective on here, that? Here's the origin story of, of From a Hat. Okay. So, in our last year, um, I think me and Paris both kind of had the same idea where, you know, we kind of wanted to stay as friends, but, you know, kind of motivate each other. So we were just like, you know, how can we do that? And I think at the same time, we were just like, what about an artist collective? Because at that time, we um, we saw Raid. Raid. Oh, was, Raid. Was yeah, yeah. There. We're like, oh, it'd be cool if we joined them. But we're, we're like nobodies, right? Right. And a couple artists around the city were kind of doing collectives as well. So we, we just said, okay, what if we the graduating class you know just up and do it and we did and um so the basic idea is that we draw names from a hat um whoever got that pick would draw that character for the week so then all of us would draw and we just do a rotation on uh i think it was at that time we had seven people right yeah. and you draw characters in like your various styles our, our various styles yeah that was the point cool. so it could have been anything you know superhero anime manga gaming right tv character yeah. But the overall purpose was to like get your get your showcase your talent, get your names out there. I would say like the, I think the purpose was was just for us to you keep drawing as friends. Okay, it was just a way for us to keep in communication right. and, and motivate each other. Okay, Th- that was a secondary aspect of you know showcasing her because after that we started getting a lot of traction, which surprised us because we, we weren't anybody really. Right. 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 Yeah, because, I mean, I remember, like, From a Hat was, like, its own Facebook page, and you guys would post your art there every week, all your different characters. It would totally blow my mind. And then, because it was online, like, you never know who's watching, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the, the first kind of, like, I guess spikes in attention was when um, Jason Liu reached out to us. Oh, Pitiful Human Lizard. And I don't remember who in the group knew him might have been uh paris i could be wrong but he asked us to do uh uh like his his character for the week to promote his kickstarter i believe right right because was he launching the kickstarter for pitiful human lizard then yeah and i remember some of our drawings were prints in the kickstarter um rewards nice so check out our episode with jason Liu. i think it's like the fifth or sixth episode 
that we did. Uh, he uh, He's the creator of Pitiful Human Lizard. Why don't we run down, like, who was all in the From a Hat collective and how sure. you found them? Yep. So, okay, I guess we'll start from uh, number one, which is Paris. And he and I were in the same class. Right, Paris Aline. Yep. And uh, next would be Matt Simmis, who's, uh, who I also met in school. Oh, nice. Yeah, and then outside of that, we met Janoy, who, if you've watched a previous episode, um, Janoy, Paris met Janoy on a bus. Oh, yeah. And yeah. they ended up like living like right next to each other or something, right. which is kind of funny to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because Janoy was on that episode, and he explained that. Janoy, obviously, uh, was doing the Luke Cage book, the digital-only book yeah. for, for Marvel. And, uh, yeah, he sort of uh, he sort of said, like, I, I met him on a bus, and... Uh, I'd never met like another person my age who was like drawing and you know, it was, it's cool. I think it was actually uh Ricky who told us about Janoy. Cause uh, Ricky was just like, Oh, I know this guy is kind of cool. And he draws and we're like, we don't want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and then Paris ended up meeting him like, Oh, this is Janoy. We're like, Oh, he's actually really good. Uh, so then that's how he, he, he joined. Nice. And uh, yeah. So, so you got Matt Seamus, you got Janoy Lindsay. You got Paris Aline. Yeah. Paris is doing uh, Haven. It's like an, yeah, it's yeah, an independent yeah. independent book. Yeah. Uh, but this like sort of ninja uh, person who looks like yeah. a panda. Hooded nin- ninja panda. Panda. Something like that. Yeah. yeah it's kind of cool. And then and then who else is there? So uh, before Janoy joined would be Jamal. And Paris and Jamal knew each other because they went to school back in the day and I like think high school high no it was either high school or middle school okay i believe and jamal was in illustration at sheridan and he said like out of the blue that he was just thinking about getting into doing comics so him joining the group was that kind of trans- transition for him of like starting to like draw comic characters and that kind of stuff right right and yeah. and we're talking about jamal campbell I yeah mean, jamal campbell who did naomi with brian michael bendis and he's doing far sector right now so uh and everybody loves jamal's art every time i hear about a comic that jamal's doing whatever you think of the plot everyone is always like but jamal campbell's art like, yeah that's the yeah. whole reason to pick up this book. it doesn't matter what the story is yeah. it's just like we're, we're here for the art <laughs> exactly yeah. exactly so he so he's cool. He's been he's been on an episode of the podcast as well. And then uh I think there's like the last member would be Dylan Burnett. Yeah. So I think one year we were tabling beside Dylan. Or it was just Paris, I believe. And I remember just coming over and I'm like, Wow, that guy's stuff is really cool. And Paris thought so too. So I, I think by the end of like the convention we kinda just asked him and pitched it to him and then he's just like Sure, I'll join for like to to do just a random week of drawings, and then he ended up staying on, and then you know that's how he joined. Nice, and obviously everybody knows Dylan Burnett. Yeah, uh, he just launched Ant Man uh, this week after the uh, recording of this episode, and uh, he's been on like Cosmic Ghost, Ghost Rider, Rider yeah. and a whole a whole bunch of things. X Force too. Yeah, X Force. Uh, what else he does? Uh, He's got his own books that he that he does like independently and yep. stuff. So, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um. So yeah. So so you guys were all together, and then you also started tabling at conventions, right? Yeah, because that that was by the time we had that full lineup. That was by the time we graduated, um, and we were kind of just like, no, where do we go from here? And the, our first thought was, okay, why don't we just start tabling at the Toronto shows? Did did it work out the way that it does for Raid, where you, you guys were able to, like, first of all, afford to table at, at a convention <laughs> collectively? And then also, like, was it easier to just table together? Like, I, w- I would say it, 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 would, it was easier, but um, we all just kind of pitched our money in and right. we just split tables until we had uh, enough for everybody. Nice. Um, do you think there was like strength in numbers? Like, do you think that your, your art got like more noticed? Yeah, there was because at that, at that time, a lot of people were like, Oh, you guys are from a hat. So because we were all together, you know, it'd be, they'd maybe come for Jamal and then they see me and then they see Paris. So it kind of worked out. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I know you guys were always doing prints of the drawings that you would do for, from a hat. Yeah, so we do, we do prints of, of the drawings and then we eventually moved into collaborations where we would kind of do this mishmash piece and everybody would take a character. So for instance, like the bat family 
right? If we, I do like Batman and Paris would do another guy and so on and so on. And then we'd sell that as a print out of conventions and people just went crazy for that. Yeah, it was pretty amazing because, you know, Paris would color it or, yep. you know, that kind of thing. I mean, uh, he's he also is coloring Afterlift, yep. right? It, which is a digital comicsology uh, book uh, written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Jason Liu. So it all it all kind of came back together. Yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. So, yeah, like it was pretty awesome. So then from a hat happens and then. When did people start getting, like, professional work? Like, what was the next stage? Because, you know, there was a point where you guys didn't do the weekly drawings anymore because some of you got yeah. too busy. So I think the year after we did our first show together, we started uh, doing Marvel and DC reviews. And I think the first person who kind of got, like, a bite at was Jamal, obviously. He's nice. the Sheridan. Best. And... Just, just a shout-out there. Yeah. And um, so he started doing... I think he did three covers for them that year. Not instantly, but I think later in the year. Right. So Jamal was first. Um, he wasn't doing sequential at the time. He said he just wanted to dip his feet with covers, and then he eventually worked his way up to sequentials. Right. And then the year after that was Dylan. And I don't remember what he started on. I, I know it was like a career-owned book. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, was it Interceptor? or No, there's something before Interceptor. Oh, okay. Um, I'll remember. It's okay. Yeah. It'll come up later. Yeah. Interceptor was like the independent book that he did with uh, Donnie Cates, I think, yeah, right? Yeah. 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 Which got him on basically Cosmic, Cosmic Ghost, Ghost Rider. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Cool. And then, so, but what about you and Matt? Like, were you, so, what was, what was happening to you at the time? So I was doing like pitches and stuff. I was also doing the reviews. Um, it's going back and forth with a lot of that, which was wearing me out for a while because it was just like, oh, you're almost there. And then it's like, no. It's like, oh, we like this pitch, but no. So, like, I did that for maybe about two years. And then I think Paris started getting picked up on coloring work. Right. So, um, and then he also did Haven as well. And then uh, eventually I just said, like, I kind of realized what I wanted to do and why I started doing comic books. And what was that? It was to just to write and draw my own stuff. So right. I was just like, why am I waiting for, you know, an opportunity to do it? I can just do it. Yeah, exactly. Cool. And I mean, a lot of people were, like you said, like Paris was publishing like Haven and stuff. And he was also doing like coloring work and stuff. So it's not like you just because you're self-publishing doesn't mean you can't also, you know, try and get company work at the same time. Like there's no limit, right? You can do whatever you want. Well, even seeing somebody like Jason when uh, he was doing those Kickstarters for the first couple issues and they would just get funded right after the other and it blow up and like everybody was talking about it i'm like well if he can do it i could do it yeah right? totally totally that's awesome um tell me about like the review process like i'm sure a lot of people listen who like want to break into comics what was it like for you getting reviewed by like dc and marvel how did it feel uh, what did they tell you that sort of thing i'll say this like marvel was probably better overall um but the beginning's kind of sweaty because you don't know if you're in or not. So you kind of just you put your name down, you hand in a portfolio into this room, and then you got to wait like a day or so for your name to appear on the list. So that's like the sweaty part. And you're like, oh, my God, did I make it? And then once you finally make it, you get a time. You go in and you sit down. I think I sit down, uh, sat down first with uh, CB, Sabalski. Nice. Now um, editor-in-chief at Marvel. Yep. And then he goes through your stuff page by page. And at that time, he said he really liked my stuff, um, that I have a feature in comics, which is great. Um, and then usually if they like you enough, they'll send you off to an editor. And then the editor will have you do sample pages and stuff. And then you'll just kind of keep contact with the editor until he thinks you're good enough for work. So basically, like, you submit those via email. Yeah, yeah. Cool, like, after the convention. Because all this happens within the two or three, two, three days, of the, three days of the convention. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That's awesome. Um, is it is it intimidating? Like, do you have any advice for people that want to like I think build after a their, portfolio? After the first time, it's not. I would say if if you want to try it, just go ahead and do it. You really have nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, you only have everything to gain. Is it better to put together like sequential uh, art pieces or so, pinups? Or? So I would say like uh, make your portfolio based on the career that you want to have. So if you want, you want to do sequentials, 
you, your portfolio has to have sequentials. If you want to do covers, then just make it covers, right? You can't be showing a portfolio for sequentials with only covers. They're going to be like, well, of course, your sequential work. Right, yeah. right. Do you, what what stands out to you as like pieces of advice that you got or criticisms that you got? What were some of the more memorable experiences uh, as you were getting like reviewed by people? Oh, um, I would say um, one of the big things was try to finish things. Don't make them perfect. Because if you spend time on making things perfect, you'll just never get them done. Right. And I think I struggled with that a lot early on because it was just like, well, I have to have this idea that's perfect or my big thing. But then you would just waste time doing that and never get it done, right? Right, right. And like you got to draw a deadline, right? Yeah. Because it's a monthly schedule. And uh, if you delay, then... The it just pushes person, everybody down. Yeah. You push down the colorist, you push down the anchor, you push down the letterer, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And it's not, it's not fair because then the book gets delayed and fans get mad yeah. and stuff. So, yeah, for Those sure. fans are crazy. Do you think you're better at finishing stuff now? Oh, yeah, because now I'm just like, okay, if I need to finish it, it's just like I don't even think of it as like a precious piece of art anymore. It's more so as like I have a goal to do. I got 20 pages these days I'm going to hit this number and that's just how I bang it at. Do you have to be more disciplined because it's for you, it's like a self uh, deadline because it's self-published. So nobody's telling you, you have to publish yeah, even, like even the next so. issue yeah. of Desert Messiah. How do you govern yourself so that you're not like taking forever to do it? Yeah. So like for me, it's just like, um, you know, I know people have read issue one and two and it's just like, Hey, where's number three, number four? Like people will ask me those questions like right after I, I finish like the second one, for instance. And I'm just like, okay, wow. So people actually really enjoy it. They want it. So it's like I have an expectation to them, even if I don't have somebody like an editor or, you know, a big uh, mainstream audience. Right. And the second issue, I mean, it it hasn't been out that long, right? No. And yeah, people are already clamoring for the third. Fall, yeah. Wow. It's been out since the fall. So yeah. did you launch it like word on the street or something? I launched it at Fan Expo. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, so tell me about it. Tell me about Desert Messiah. What were you doing at the time that you came up with the idea? You know, where was your career at at that time? And uh, and what was the genesis of it? So I think at the time I was doing pitches for uh, Image, I believe, for a couple of writers I knew. Um I did this really uh, good one called Funeral that never made it, which I'm kind of salty about it, but it was, it was really cool. But that was kind of, um, I, that was the thing that made me te- take the step into thinking that, okay, maybe I can write my own books because I was getting a lot of requests from people where the story wasn't what I thought was, you know, up to par or wasn't what I wanted to draw. So it was just like, so people would tell you like, I like it, but I want you to change it. Exactly. I want you to change like this part or whatever. Yeah. Like, so tell me about funeral. So funeral is this book I did with this writer called, um, well pitch, sorry, not a book with, uh, Brian Wickman. Okay. And it was basically, uh, she was a exorcist in like a modern day setting where demons would like hide in like human body. And she'd have like a guitar as a weapon and, holy water and all this kind of stuff and she's also in a punk rock band oh nice yeah so it was, it was a pretty cool idea yeah cool so and then did did he find you or the Brian uh, so Hickman? I, I think he found me through from a hat but he actually went to dylan first actually so back at this time dylan was just getting his work out there and he's kind of taking on a few gigs and he was just like hey i want to work with you and dylan's like kind of busy so he just kind of said, here's a bunch of artists you can, uh, you know, go to. And I was one of them. And that was also a great thing about From Ahead at that time is, like, if any of us were too busy to take on something, we would just be like, okay, Paris, you know, if you're looking for work, here you go. If you're looking for work, here you go. So it was kind of like a also a social network for work. Nice. So then you did the pitch, but then, like, did the editors want you to so change we, a bunch of stuff? So we did a pitch. Um, we shopped it around. Um, they were just like, we like it, but not this part. Um, so we shopped it around again. I think he shopped it around to maybe like seven or eight places. So then we sat down and we said, okay, we're going to change it again. 
and I was just like, okay, this is fine. I really, I really like the idea. Let's do it. So we, we took it even further into the future. Cause I think what we started off with, it was like eighties, nineties. So we took it to the future, changed around all the characters, pitched it again. Nobody took it. Um, but at that same time, he was kind of getting some traction with, um, uh, this book he has called grit. Okay. Which I think is, I don't remember the publisher, but he started with that. Um, he was just like, okay, I'm get, kind of getting too busy. And that was where I was just like, okay, I have nothing to do now. Right. Um, and you were kind of getting tired of like relying on other people. Exactly. So like at that time, I, I you know, I went through a lot of pitches and I was just like, I, I can't keep doing this cause I just want to make comics. Right. Like, like I want to have the money is important, but it was just like, I'm not even doing what I want to do, which is just to make them. Right. Right. right exactly. So, and I guess like when you're pitching, how does that even work? Because sometimes you have to rework the pitch a bunch of times. So like, do you do it all for free or does the writer have to pay you? Or is there like a deal that happens or what? If you're working with a good writer, um, who's also a good person. They'll usually pay you for the pages and then they'll just work for free. Um, sometimes you're just working with people who can't afford to pay you. And it's just like, we're pitching this just off of, you know, goodwill and then if that does turn into something they'll put something in the contract to give you a little more on the back end right right okay yeah. that makes sense um yeah but it's sort of a if this goes like yeah you know it's you don't even know like it's kind of up in the air right yeah so during that like two years i was pitching i wasn't really making that much money because it was just like pitch 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 right and you'd have like the odd writer who would offer to pay right but it was frustrating all yeah, in all yeah, right yeah so then, so then you're like, okay, I gotta, I gotta start doing my own thing. How did Desert Messiah come to you? Was that the first idea? So, Desert Messiah is actually an idea I had for, a, let's call it a like college thesis. So we uh, in last year for college, we had to do this assignment where we did a five-page, almost like a pitch, of a book we wanted to do, and I had this idea that. Yeah, it was loosely based off Lone Wolf and Cub. So then I went back to that immediately after I was thinking of things to do because I'm like, okay, that was kind of cool. I like the style I did it in. I kind of like the tone. And I was just like, okay, I can turn this into something. So I kind of looked at the characters, and I think at the time I had it originally focused on um, the male character. And it was just kind of like, oh, I, you have this kid that's kind of in the desert. And I was just like, okay, let me spin that around. And that's where Desmond Messiah came. Nice. Nice. Cool. Yeah, I definitely get the lone wolf and cub vibes, as I said off the top. Uh, now that The Mandalorian is out, which was heavily influenced yeah. by lone wolf and cub, uh, I feel like people are even more going to be interested in Desert Messiah. See, that's the one reason I have not watched it yet, because I'm just like, I don't want to be too yeah. influenced from it. Don't watch yeah. it. But definitely have it out because yeah. people are going to be like, Oh yeah. Like I really like the Mandalorian. If you like the Mandalorian, you're going to like desert Messiah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, but I think the turn I took was, um, like if you've read the first chapter of desert Messiah, it's very heavily based on Lone Wolf and Cub. Right. And then the second chapter, I take it in about 15 years into the future where the kid grows up and she's kind of dealt with the consequences of the world around her. Wow, yeah. that's awesome. So So that that was kind of the pivot for me. Yeah. Cool, cool. And that's a good idea because you never really saw the future of the cub in yeah. Lone Wolf and Cub. Yeah. But I know that tons of fans always wanted to know like what happened to the kid. That's really cool. So with the time jump, I mean, how did you decide like you know, how long to like age age her up for and like you know, you know, when were you going to stop? And then, and then like, there's a lot of backstory that happens yeah. off panel. Right. Yeah. So like my big thing is like when I was, when I started that first issue, I always kind of had this thing in me that wanted to make the main character, um, echo, which is the girl in the book. And I'm just like, I can't really do that if she's like an infant. Right. Right. It would just kind of be weird. So I'm like, the only way is to, to bring it forward in the future, but I didn't want it to bring it, too much for it where she was like an older woman or like a young woman but i just wanted to do it enough that you know i'd have two main characters which is akuchi the other character in the first book and her right and he's like an older man and yeah he's an older book. man so you kind of see like he's aged up he's got scars 
you know he's kind of beaten up so you can each one of those scars has its own story and she'll ask about them and say oh where's that from and some are before her and some are with her right right and it's sort of like a mentor sensei sensei sort of relationship yeah that he has with her like pupil father sort of stuff yeah do you draw on like your own relationship with your dad or other family members for inspiration as well um a little um like i saw like how in in my book the two characters are very like rough with each other right um so like he's kind of like an asshole and she's kind of like this jokester lighthearted, you know character so i kind of saw a lot of those dynamics with my cousins and stuff when i was young so i definitely drew a lot from there but i would say more so part of that just comes from characters that i've you know watched through like anime manga so like um characters like vegeta and uh you know, like those type of asshole right. archetypes. Where they're where, like, it's where I got the inspiration for like their relationship. Where it's like a tough love, like tough I'm love, pushing yeah. you because I love you type of type of thing. Right? Yeah, or or it's more so like tough love is the only thing that he knows. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's interesting because that could create like really interesting avenues for like emotional conflict. Yeah. You know, and they're sort of stuck together because it's a bit of a wasteland, like the world, right? Yeah. So like in the in the second part of the book, I guess the the main premise is that, you know, they're at a point in the relationship where they have a lot of tension, but he gets stricken with this illness that's you know uncurable, so she's kind of forced to kind of like sit it out with him, and find a cure for this thing that's basically incurable. Wow, it's sort of like, I don't know, like the Mandalorian and Lone Wolf and Cub meets like the farewell or something. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of awesome. It's really good. So if you've never read Desert Messiah and you're going in completely cold, what is your elevator pitch for it? To I would say it's the action adventure um, that is like a high octane um, nonstop thriller. So it's basically just an emotional roller coaster with these two people who kind of hate each other. But they really love each other. Right, right. Yeah. Awesome. It's set in like this sort of sci-fi. It's like a cyberpunk desert uh, wasteland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of a weird dystopia, sort of post-apocalyptic. Just a little bit of Akira. Yeah. A little bit of uh, Neon uh, Genesis in there. Nice, nice. So, and then your art is like heavily influenced by like uh, manga too, yeah. right? So I, th- I think a part of that too is like when, when I stopped the... Uh, or when I decided to do my own stuff, um, I was drawing very like, as pe- people would call myself Marvel back then, but right. like, I'd, I'd ink over it so it'd kind of give it uh, its own look. Um, so I was just like, okay, why don't I just let my influences free? And you know, that's kind of what it brought it to me what I have today. Right, right. And I do know that there are some artists that you know work for mainstream uh, publishers like Marvel and DC that have sort of an manga style like you know people like marcus toe come to mind yep. or like or like craig young when he's like inking people and stuff it's it's that kind it's that kind of style so it does have space in mainstream publishers but uh you know there's only a few people that have been able to sort yeah. of break through that I, way I, I would say as well that like the, i would say the mainstream audience outside of that only really has a certain like amount of taste for it right like if you go way too far far down they're just like okay now that's way too much right yeah this isn't what i grew up yeah. reading anymore it's not superhero yeah. yeah i think the only guy who can do that is joe mad yeah yeah and this stuff is like really if you really take a look at it it's really more like manga inspired than anything else right right yeah. but it's so on the surface it's so mainstream that people don't realize people exactly don't realize, realize that. it's even like manga inspired yeah, yeah. totally totally cool so for you, like, what, where do you want to take Desert Messiah? Is it is it okay for you now that you're doing like the self published thing? Are you feeling fulfilled? Yeah. So this this is exactly what you know I set out to do. Um, like I always when when I during that time when I was like in high school, I was just drawing my own comics. Right. Right. So to do that now is great. Um, my plan right now is just to hopefully finish the book as fast as I can and you know get it out there to people. So how many issues are you planning? So I'm planning eight issues, but what I want to do is actually a two-part volume. So it'll be volume one and volume two. 
Cool. Um, I think floppies are great, but I don't think uh, it's kind of hard for people to keep up with it. And if you try to sell everybody, you know, here's issue one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, it's kind of a big sell. Then here's book one and book two. Yeah, it yeah. seems like if you're going to do floppies, you have to do the graphic novel as fast as possible. Yeah. So that everybody can, you know, within the year that you do your issues, you should do the graphic novel so that if people come to a convention and they're like, ah, you know, do you, is it all collected? Because yeah. that's like a really common yeah. question. You can give them something and they can read the whole the whole thing because that's what people want yeah. now, right? I think that's the way that the kind of industry is, is trending. Right. With it's, more collected books and bigger books and graphic novels and that type of thing. Yeah. Even DC and Marvel are doing their off-brand um, graphic novels for kids and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, DC has Black Label yeah. and that stuff too, like where all it is is like a prestige format uh, graphic novel, uh, one one story, and they're all graphic novel yeah. issues. Longer, larger, that sort of thing. Plus, it works better in bookstores. So exactly. So there's more avenue for like selling it and like putting it in comic shops. I'm sure that like indie creators – would sell more graphic novels than actual yeah. issues, right? Like, I remember buying, like, some of my first com- comics that were, like, graphic novel size in, like, um, like, a Shopper's Drug Mart. Yeah. So they had, like, Archie's. They had, like, Shonen uh, Jump. Some, like, uh, Marvel one-shots, right? So would you do it, like, regular graphic novel size, or would you do it, like, a pocket digest size then? My plan is to do a regular graphic novel size. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah, because the art, it doesn't look yep. so cramped and you people can actually see it and stuff like that. That's good. That's good. So when is this, uh, when, when is the graphic novel coming out? Like, what's so your, what's your plan? My volume one should come out just before summer. Um, mm. I'm planning to do a Kickstarter for it. Nice. Just to fund that whole book. Um, and then volume two will be the end of the year. Nice. Nice. So are you going to go right from these two issues into doing the graphic novel? Or yeah. You, okay. So my plan is like the, the issue one is kind of like the prologue story. Right. And then chapter two is like the teaser for the whole story going forward because that's when the time skip happens right right so i feel like if i had to like introduce anybody to the series i could be like here are these two books if you like it then you could buy book one and then book two yeah these is this is like your small pitch yeah that sort of thing like i remember uh when i bought the first issue of raising dion which is like a series on netflix now Yeah. yeah it was always clear that he wanted that the guy the creator wanted it to be a netflix series but he did the comic to give to have something to give to like producers and stuff and be like this is this is what i want to do kind of thing because you knew that other issues of the comic were coming out the comic was just a vehicle to like to make the show happen and stuff and that's kind of this like the comics are the vehicle Vehicle for for the the graphic graphic novel novel. yeah cool man that's awesome so yeah, I, I, what has been the reception of these two issues so far? Like, now you're on your own. You know, you have to pay for convention tables yourself. Like, yeah. do you still table with from a hat, or is it basically not really your because own thing? A lot of them have gotten to like, uh, like they'll get sponsored by DC to like right. do signings and stuff, right? Right. So like, we unfortunately can't do that anymore. But I still table by myself. Um, but the reception wise on the book has like actually surprised me because there were like some younger kids that picked it up. I, I didn't know about like, they kind of just grabbed it and they were just like, Oh, we love this. And I'm like, wait, I didn't write this for you. I'm like, that's kind of weird. And it was like a bunch of kids, like in this like 13 to like 15 age range that like, I didn't expect to, to even like take to it that really loved it. And then it made me go back and say like, Oh, maybe, you know, I can, write this for them like how um anime and manga and stuff for me back then was right but then you're not gonna like you're not gonna like age it down no i'm not gonna age it down right. but like yeah it kind of gives it purpose now right right yeah right before i was just kind of doing it aimlessly and i was just kind of like oh yeah you know you have an audience yeah yeah that's always nice but like you- there's also older people that like it and they're like really digging it and i'm like okay so there's it's like a book for everybody is it a little bit harder when when it's like you're on your own? Like everything that happens is dependent on you? Yeah, because you're wearing a different hat all the time. <laughs> and for me, it's just like I can't do all those things at the same time. 
I kind of just like put on my writer hat and then I write for a couple months and I'm like, okay, I'm tired of writing. I've written like three chapters. So I'll take off that hat. I put on my artist hat, start drawing. And then I'm done with that. And then I got to be an editor, put on the editor hat and edit it for a bit. And once I finish that, it's like, okay, now it's time to promote it. So now I got to be like this promoter for my book. Right. Right. So it's kind of like, you're kind of swapping between these roles and it kind of gets, you know, a little tiresome because you're not actually doing the thing you want to do all the time. Right. Right. And until it breaks through at a certain level, you got to find ways to support yourself consistently. Right. So are, are you okay with, you know, not being like fully into the comic thing and having to have like a day job. Yeah. yeah. For me, it's, it's, it's all about making it. And as long as I'm making comics and I'm in comics, it's as simple as that. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So you, you feel fulfilled. This is where you want to be. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, that's so cool, man. So if people want to find you and find out when the graphic novel comes out, if you make that summer deadline that you set for yourself, uh, where can people find you on social media? So you can find me at, at Tishan Dwyer. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, DeviantArt2. Um, nice. Um, and, and now that you're on your own, are you are you happy for the success of your other From a Hat compatriots? Oh, of course. How I, do you feel about it? I love it. Like, whenever I see, like, I see, like, a cover of Jamal's and I'm like, that's my guy. <laughs> nice. Or if I see, like, you know an announcement for a book that either Paris is doing or, 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 um, Genoa is doing. Like it just, it just fills me with so much hope because it, it, it makes me realize like what we set out to do before, you know, we actually achieved it. Right. And there's no like jealousy or whatever, like no, he made no, no. it and I didn't. And yeah. you know, it's not like, it's not like a band or that kind no, of no, stuff. No, no, no. It's all, it's like, we were all friends before. Yeah. We're friends after. So nice. Yeah. Nice. And you, you still hang out to this day? Uh, to this day. Yeah. We still do drink and drowse and from time, like from time to time we'll collaborate and do, uh, those same type of pieces. Nice. Yeah. I, I want to see the return yeah. at, at some point. I'll be watching social media for that. That's awesome. All right, man. Well, thanks for being on the show. This has been great. And uh, we've been talking to T. Sean Dwyer. You have to pick up Desert Messiah. Follow him on social media uh, to get his uh, convention dates. Are you going to be at the Toronto Comic Con in March? Toronto Con- I'm waiting. Okay. I should be there. I'll be at Fan Expo as well. Um, hopefully, TCAP is another one I'm waiting to hear back from. Nice. Um, word on the street, too. All right. And we'll we'll and, hopefully uh, see you there. Saga. And... Uh, We'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.